I represent uh, District 9, which is made up of three or four neighborhoods, depending on, you know, how you cut it. So St. Mary's yes. Park is often kind of lumped in with Bernal Heights. Um, but sometimes the people who live there feel like it's a distinct neighborhood. So, so you know, I, I'm always like, you know, do I represent three or four neighborhoods? So right. I'll, I'll just I'll just err on the side of distinct neighborhoods and say four neighborhoods, which are the Mission District, Bernal Heights, St. Mary's Park, and the Portola. That was District 9 Supervisor Hillary Roman. I'm Jeff. Welcome to Storied San Francisco a weekly podcast where San Franciscans from all walks of life share their stories, and you get to know your neighbors. In this podcast, Hillary tells the story of her parents and how they met in Los Angeles, where she grew up. She went to college at UC San Diego and spent a couple of years after graduation in Barcelona to learn Spanish. She came back to go to law school at UC Berkeley, but after a couple of summers away doing various legal work, she had a realization that landed her in the Mission District. Here's Hillary. Both of my parents had a profound impact on my life um, in very different ways. And and I've, I, I've always been very, very close to my father. So I've been very acutely aware of his impact on my life. And it's only since I've become an adult that I've begun to really appreciate the impact my mother has had on me as well. Um, and and they're just they're amazing people um, and like all of us they're complicated and difficult <laughs> and um, but the, but the reason I think my dad had such an impact on me you know in in certain ways my sort of the gender roles were reversed in mm-hmm. my family um, my dad was the more sort of emotionally engaged parent who would um, you know whenever I was upset or going through a crisis or needed help at school or anything he was the main person that was there um getting me through it in fact now that i have a daughter when she has you know like kind of crazy emotional breakdowns and i'm dealing with them i'm really understood understanding what i put him through (laughs) (laughs) calling him and saying oh my gosh thank you so much this is so hard i can't believe how many times i called you crying and you like counseled me through whatever drama i was engaged in Um, so he was he was kind of the emotional caretaker and nurturer and then my mom was kind of the steady breadwinner who you know was always working a million jobs make ends meet i'm sorry how did they meet in a in a nightclub um yes. <laughs> it's, a, it's a funny story so my um my mom grew up in milwaukee wisconsin and to a, a middle-class jewish family and um when she wanted to get away from her family basically when she grew up and so she after she graduated from college she's a speech therapist mm-hmm. uh, she moved to los angeles and was kind of the furthest from milwaukee she could get away <laughs> get away to and so she yeah i'm thinking <laughs> d- d- dreary dark snowy milwaukee yeah. sunny southern california exactly. she's like get me out of here i want to be on my own and so she moved out west and um, began teaching in in los angeles and and has, has been well spent her entire career in the los angeles unified school district wow. um doing speech therapy with um, especially kids, not not especially with all kids, but she had a a specialty in kids with handicaps. And so I grew up, um, and this is like 
part of how I'm realizing the profound influence my mom had on me that I didn't appreciate until becoming an adult. I grew up uh, around, ever since I was born, kids with um, uh, mental disabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and it was so normal. It wasn't, you know, there was, no, my mom has this amazing way of treating people genuinely. Right as an equal, you know, and, and, um, and it's, it's so, it's, it's, it's so genuine. And I, I, it's not, it's, it's natural for it. It doesn't take any work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, just these kids that, that she would, um, do speech therapy with would often be at my house or she would take oh, wow. them with her to their houses. And then I would end up playing, um, with them and their, people that we grew up together and were friends till today. And um, I developed, you know, a real love and understanding of of people with differences, worked with Special Olympics for a while. Um, And so that, you know, I I never gave it, I never gave her or that experience enough credit for influencing who I am. Right. Um, Until now. And I'm realizing more and more what an influence that had on me. What I recognized my whole life and still recognize as having had a, a, a major influence on me was my dad's experience. He uh, was an immigrant from, from Israel. Oh, he wow. uh, was born and raised in Israel, served in the army uh, as a paratrooper and um, lived on a kibbutz in his younger years. And when he uh, was on a kibbutz, there was an American woman who came to live there and they fell in love. And he uh, also kind of escaping my parent, his parents, similar, similar to my mom. They, they both, they're just independent people, very independent people. And so he, um, you know, took a boat from Tel Aviv, Israel, all the way to New York City um, and penniless worked, you know, worked his way on the boat here slept you know with the, the the workers in in the you know steerage passage or pass as a steerage passenger and slept in bunks and all of that arrived in new york and um quickly the relationship didn't work out and so he was alone penniless didn't speak great english <laughs> and um really didn't know anybody except he had a great aunt uh, okay. who was living um, I believe in the Bronx. Okay. And so he moved in with her and really just was she, started. Was she part of maybe why he went to New York? I mean, that was no, it was for love. Oh. Yeah. He, he, he went for love. And Followed his heart. Out, and so he ended up with the great aunt. Poor guy. <laughs> <laughs> but he, um, you know, he worked in in every sort of working class job you can think of trying to make ends meet, learning, trying to learn English. Um, he was undocumented at the time, although being undocumented at that time was such a different thing than it is. Wasn't today. stigmatized by it, it really. Not stigmatized. Yeah. And yeah. he had white skin. So the combination right. of having white skin and it not being stigmatized, he had a thick accent, um, which, you know, impacted him many times in his life. Sure. But he um, was able to you know, he, and he also didn't have the American context of uh, so much, you know, racism. So he was in uh, pretty much at the time in all uh, African-American black neighborhood. Okay. And he would like go to the barbershop to get his hair cut and they'd all look at him like, 
what are you doing? <laughs> you know, I had no idea. No yeah. idea. Well, we, we, we Jews can have curls. It's true. Yeah, it's just not, there, right? <laughs> whole but, other level. Right. It's true. It's true. But, you know, they, they, he always thought they were, they treated him weird because of his accent. He had hmm. no concept at that point of, um, you know, white racism against black people and, right. and, and the systemic racism that he was existing in. And so, um, you know, that's, that's kind of his story. He, he, he was driving a cab for a while and then he started oh. making his way from New York out to the West Coast. He lived in Detroit. I mean, he lived all over the place. Mm -hmm. he finally landed in LA. And when would that have been? Maybe 60s or so? Yeah, definitely the 60s. You're, I'm guessing you're born in the 70s. I was born in 75. Yeah, so they yeah. were together quite a while before they had me. So Okay. Um, Maybe it, early 60s. It would have been this, yeah, early Sometime. mid 60s. Okay. Yeah. They met in a nightclub, um, and my mom tells the story <laughs> that he <laughs> asked for her number, and uh, she gave it to him, but he didn't write it down. And she just said, <laughs> oh, he, you know, he's not really interested. That'll never happen. And sure enough, he remembered the number and called her, and they got he together. Was, he was being cool. He's like, I don't need to write it down. Exactly, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to impress you with my memory. <laughs> cool, so he made the call. He made the call. And was and your mom living at home at this point? Like, did her dad answer or something? Oh, no, because they were in Milwaukee, and she was alone in L.A. Oh, that's right. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And he lived in Hollywood, and um, I think, you know, after a while, they moved They moved in together, and I think they were together a good five or six years uh, before they, they had me, okay. and um, I was basically, I was born uh, December 22nd, 1975, and, like, a few days later, they moved into uh, an apartment building in West LA where they still live today in a rent controlled apartment in West Los Angeles, a tiny two bedroom apartment for 44 years. But yeah, I grew up in, in, that, in that apartment and I go, I still go visit them in LA in that same apartment. And awesome. they're the only ones left from the time that we moved in. Um, they're the, the godparents of the apartment building and they take care of, you know, all the kids that are now there and are like mm -hmm. the grandparents for them. It's very sweet. It's very do sweet. you have siblings, Hillary? I do. I have a younger sister. Um, okay. She's six years younger than myself. And uh, she uh, was born in 1982 and, and lives in Long Beach. So not as far away from my parents as I do. Right. And has uh, one son, which is who was born one week after my daughter. Oh, wow. So, um, the two of them are best friends, and it's very sweet. Yeah, and your parents have one of each. One of each. One, one cool. grandson, one granddaughter, yeah. Cool. Okay, well, so you were born, I mean, I guess you um, don't remember the first few years of your life, so we'll skip over that. <laughs> um, but what was, what was it like to grow up in L.A.? You said, did you say West L.A.? West L.A. West okay. L.A. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, there were good things about it. And then there were bad things about it. Like the good things about it were, you know, we did live in this apartment with a courtyard. So we could be safely outside um, in, you know, the city of Los Angeles um, with, with, within this enclosed gated courtyard. And so, uh, and there were lots of kids growing up. So we'd all play together in the courtyard and that part was good. 
Um, there's a very big car culture in LA, which I don't like. I love public transportation. I love being able to get around by myself. Um, and growing up, my parents had to drive me everywhere and they were very, they're very overprotective. So even when I became a teenager, I wasn't allowed to take the bus. Um, and, and it wasn't the culture to take the bus, for right. Kids, right? right? Like it is here in San Francisco. It was, mm-hmm. it, it just didn't happen, at least not in West LA. And LA is so huge that it just takes so long to get from one place to another. And I grew up in a very, you know, West LA is pretty wealthy, but my like micro neighborhood wasn't that wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my parents weren't wealthy. So mm-hmm. um, I grew up in a, you know, middle working class household. My mom being, you know, my dad was, you know, pretty much always had working class jobs. And then my mom um, was, was a school teacher. And so we, um, we were, you know, middle working class when my mom went on strike, you know, with this, with the teachers, we had a hard time putting food on the table, that kind of thing. Um, Did your mom work when you and your sister were were little? Yeah, my mom, my mom's a worker bee. Yeah. I think we took off like a few weeks and then we went to, we went to daycare. Yeah. Um, But we had, we always had, um, our home-based daycare. So it was like mm-hmm. having other family. And right. you know, my mom's still close today with the, the people that took care of us when we were little. Um, and yeah, she always worked a lot. So she'd work all day and then she would do private um, therapy classes at night. So sometimes wow. we'd go there, sometimes we'd be home. Um, but it, it was like, you know, middle working class households uh, in San Francisco, you, you can't survive with one job. And you know, we had to, have, they both had to have several jobs in order mm-hmm. to keep, keep us going. Um, but what was really influential to me um, w- w- was watching my dad because he's a really, really smart guy. And he um, always had these, these, you know, minimum wage jobs where pe- people didn't treat him with the respect that he deserved. And, mm. but, and, and because he, you know, he, he was so smart and he would, read a lot and you know always really up on current events and had strong opinions and had a real deep analysis about inequality and injustice you know he would always stand up for himself and his co-workers in the workplace and then suffer the consequences so even though he was so smart and good at whatever job that he did he would never advance because <laughs> he got against injustice and so which there was a lot of in minimum wage jobs uh, in this country. And so, um, you know, he would struggle a lot with that and I would watch that and it would upset me. And, you know, we would discuss issues in our households um, of what, you know, what's fair and just and equal and, um, and, and abuse of power and, you know, what it means to live in a capitalist society and all that kind of stuff we'd have those really overt discussions That's... and I would watch its impact on my very family. And right. So when, like how young would you say you were when you started having those conversations? That's really awesome, by the way. Yeah. I'm, I'm jealous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was just part of... Like life. as long as you remember kind of thing? As long as I remember, yeah. yeah. Like I, I, I remember, um, you know, I, and... It, 
you know, in nowadays, I don't fully agree with all his analysis, but at the mm-hmm. time, but the fact that we would talk about it, I was aware of what was happening. Like he was very upset about school busing because he felt like it was, you know, wrong to make kids um, travel, you know, really far neighborhoods in communities um, where it was so apparent how different they were from their own and that it caused more damage. Now, I don't know if I feel that way nowadays, right? right. right? It's like, a, but, it would, but we would have those critical discussions and, and I wasn't probably sophisticated enough at the time to push back, um, but, but I, would, I would be thinking about them and thinking like, is that fair? And is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Um, and, and like you and, said, some of the topics that you guys talked about weren't, were not abstract. Like you would see the effects of. Yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. The, the concept of social justice and inequality and um, a society that was systemically flawed um, in pretty much every institution was something that I was aware of pretty young. Um, and as I grew old, older, you know, my understanding of it grew deeper and deeper. I had always sort of been interested in giving back to my community and I did it in some, you know, pretty funny non-political ways when I was younger in high school, like, you know, doing recycling campaigns and giving drunk high school students rides home. And my um, real sort of political activism started in college. You went to San Diego, right? UC San Diego. Um, Okay. I went down south, further south to uh, UC San Diego. And UC San Diego has five smaller campuses. And um, one of the campuses... Uh, was focused on uh, sort of racial, systemic racism and social justice and, you know, uh, sort of uh, changing the system. And that, of course, the campus I chose is called the Thurgood Marshall Campus. Oh, awesome. And... um, had like specific curriculum around that and um was it like a public policy type of program or well it was undergrad so it was you know it was you could major in whatever you wanted to major but Mm -hmm. it had a track um that was sort of like it was diversity justice um there was one more component of it i don't remember but you had to all the students in the college had to do that one curriculum and it was all about sort of the history of um, racism and inequality. There, there was a big emphasis on, on race and on, okay. you know, the, the use of race in, in this country uh, to uh, basically justify oppression and unequal treatment among people. So there was a whole curriculum about that. And then in addition, you know, uh, a whole justice curriculum that involved, you know, both in and outside the courts. Uh, it was pretty amazing. Um, there, there was a whole, a whole course as well on hegemony and sort of how um, those in power use 
the media and uh, our everyday culture to sort of enslave us <laughs> in, in, in these ideas. It was, it was really, it was radical. It was, it was sophisticated. It was amazing. I loved it. It's, it's how um, you end up with a reality TV star president. But I won't, we, we, we don't need to go down that. For example, for example, yeah, just, just for one, example. just one. <laughs> but at UCSD is when I um, when I first started engaging in activism, and 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 in those days, so it was it was you know nineteen ninety. I, I I started college in nineteen ninety four, um, and uh, Prop um, one eighty seven and two oh nine uh, were being. Uh, pushed forward by Pete Wilson, the Republican governor at the time of California. And I was super embroiled in fighting those awful uh, state propositions. 187 would have um, prohibited any government or public resources used for undocumented individuals, including schools for children, (laughs) for the uh, public school system. And Prop 209, did successfully end affirmative action as we knew it. We lost both at the ballot, but we won a we won the one eighty seven fight at the at the at the courts. And then I studied abroad for a year in in England um, at the University of Sussex okay. as um, one way of escaping San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> and I um, that was incredible. I had an incredible year where I met you know, really radical students that even further politicized me. Um, And then I came back, finished my last year at UC San Diego and immediately left San Diego. And I think I've been back once for (laughs) for my friend's bridal shower. And other than that, I haven't been that. Really good Mexican food, um, beaches, weather, all that stuff. And that's it for me. It wasn't my place. I, again, I got a great education. I loved their good Marshall campus. Uh, I met some really great friends, but it was not my place. And I really haven't gone back since. Um, right. But I, um, but I got a lot out of it. And uh, what I decided uh, was I needed to learn Spanish because right. Um, I knew that I wanted to work in social justice. I knew that I, I, I'd always been really interested in, in like the rest of the world outside of the United States. And, you know, I thought it was pretty sad that I could only speak one language and I, um, I wanted to learn Spanish and I had a friend living in Barcelona, Spain, who I had met at, at UC San Diego. So fast forward to me to Two of the best years of my entire life, I lived in Barcelona and I learned Spanish. And did you graduate in four years? I did, yeah. I graduated in 98. And then I spent the summer of 98 working like four jobs. And I I was just saving up as much money as I could in order to have a little spending money to start off with in Barcelona. And so Barcelona was so dirt cheap at the time because it was... um, First of all, it hadn't been recognized, kind of like San Francisco at the time, right? It hadn't been recognized as one of the most beautiful, incredible, fantastic cities in the world. It hadn't gentrified in the way it is today. And um, they, hadn't, they hadn't moved over to the euro. Right. So they were still using pesetas and everything was compared to California dirt cheap. 
And so I started off just doing, you know, jobs that undocumented people could get under the table. I passed out flyers on Las Ramlas, which is one of the, the real tourists' uh, avenues of Barcelona uh, for Museum Erotica <laughs> and a bunch of like under the table jobs. And then eventually I just started meeting um, a bunch more people who introduced me to other people who wanted to learn English. And so I just became a private English tutor slash teacher. And um, I would walk from one house to the next during the day to give my classes, which was the most privileged moment of my life because I got to walk around the most beautiful city in the world every single day. I knew it backwards and forwards uh, at the time. It was a long time ago, but- um, For those who haven't been to Barcelona, uh, let's see if you agree with me. It's like the city, part of what is so charming and beautiful is the architecture, the streets, everything, like these big, you know, wide sidewalks and everything. But you got to actually go in to several of those beautiful buildings. Absolutely. Which yeah. not everyone gets the opportunity to do. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was an incredible, incredible two years of my life. I, I learned Spanish. Um, I met some of my best friends to this day. I um, got to live a life at a pace that was kind, you know, I, I, I worked very little and, and the little that I worked gave me enough money to pay my, you know, room in a, with a, in a flat with a bunch of roommates and pay for my food and pay for my Spanish classes, um, which was all I had to pay for at that time, <laughs> right. pretty much. And, um, oh my gosh, it was, I can't, I can't speak highly enough about it. Um, I wish, it, you know, what makes me sad is that Barcelona was a little behind San Francisco in terms of the wide scale gentrification, but it um, and it certainly happened that the, the switch from the peseta to the euro made it you know made everything a lot more expensive a lot quicker but it's it would be hard to do today what i did in in 95 no no sorry in uh, 98 which echoes a lot of stories you hear about here it's like the way that i lived in san francisco in the 90s Everyone, like, they, that's why I think San Franciscans love Barcelona so much is because there's something that two cities have in common. We are officially sister cities. Yes, we are. Um, my, my predecessor, David Campos, uh, created the sister city relationship with Barcelona. Oh. But um, they, they gentrified along the same sort of path. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, what I was able to do in the early 2000s in San Francisco, which was very similar, living off a nonprofit salary uh, in the heart of the mission or in Bernal, um, you know, uh, nobody can do today and right. nobody could do today in Barcelona what I did, which was work. You know, I had two clients a day and I'd walk from one house to the next. I'd go to my Spanish class and then I'd go home and hang out. Oh, gosh. It was so wonderful. It's, it's <laughs> so interesting. <laughs> my personal experience, I didn't go to Barcelona for my first time until I want to say 20, let's just say 2012, you know, eight, six, eight years ago or something. Um, and I loved it then. It makes me wonder, you know, how much more I would have loved it back then. That's all. You would have loved it. It, it, yeah, it, I'm it, swooning it, over it, here. It's I don't know. <laughs> it's just like San Francisco. It's the same city, but it's not as cool as it used to be. So that was my my two years in Barcelona, which was incredible. And then I came back uh, to Berkeley and I've never left really, except for 
for short periods in California ever since. Did um, you have I, to leave or what was the decision? First of all, I, to leave Barcelona, because we've now talked about how much you've loved it. Um, but the first of all, the decision to leave and then second of all, the decision to go to Berkeley. I wanted to spend my life fighting for a society where everyone had the, the privileges I had. Um, like just the privilege to be able to get up and go and live undocumented with white skin in Spain. Um, I, I didn't have money per se. Like I pretty much did it all on my own, but it was, but like, it's just life is easier for a, a white woman that's educated, even if she's middle working class mm -hmm. than it is for, um, for people of color. And, and I just, I, what I was able to do um, and what I've always been able to do, like be respected when I go into places, um, you know, I, again, just watching my dad when I was growing up be disrespected time and time again, I just, I never want anyone else to go through that. And, um, and, and, and so what I want, what I wanted to spend my life doing and what I've spent my life doing ever since is fighting to right those wrongs. And so my, while I had the time of my life and it wasn't like, I didn't really, I had just a lot of fun for those two years in Barcelona. Let's be honest. My goal was to learn Spanish so that I could be a more effective advocate and fighter. Okay. And I knew that I wanted to go to law school because that's how I thought I was going to end up being um, participating in, in movements for change. And okay. so I applied to law school at UC Berkeley while I was in um, Barcelona and I got in. And I, so it was always my plan. I'm a planner. So it was always my plan to um, go to Barcelona for two years, learn Spanish, apply for law schoolers there, come back after two years and go to law school. So. It's one thing to plan. It's obviously another to actually follow through with this plan. <laughs> I know. I'm good at following through this plan. Awesome. I, uh, I love planning. I love thinking about what's next. So basically I came back to go to law school, which was, which was my plan. And, mm -hmm. um, I started law school at Berkeley in 1999 and, um, uh, and I did my three years there. So Berkeley law school was hard. Um, mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, my classmates were geniuses mm -hmm. and I just didn't feel like a genius. Um, so I struggled more than I've ever struggled in school before. Um, UCSD was was hard too, but I, I excelled at UCSD and I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm not used to being like at the bottom of my class. <laughs> you know, I'm not right. used to being so much less intelligent than my classmates. It just, it was, you know, it, it, it was a rude awakening. I was like, ah, so right. that was hard for me. It was a very humbling experience. Right. Um, so what I did right away is I basically turned it into an all clinical course study because I was so excited about just working and fighting for justice. Um, so I joined both the International Human Rights Law Clinic as well as we're East Bay Community Law Clinic, East Bay Community Law Clinic, EBCLC. And um, so in EBCLC, I worked uh, 
with homeless uh, with homeless people who needed legal assistance um, at at our what we called the suitcase clinic, and then I also um, helped expunge criminal records. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did at, at EBCLC, and then at the International Human Rights Clinic, I. Um, got involved in a lawsuit against the Dominican Republic on behalf of Dominicans of Haitian descent mm -hmm. that were um, born, that were either migrants from Haiti to the Dominican Republic or were born in the Dominican Republic to migrant parents, mm -hmm. but denied illegally uh, Dominican citizenship. Mm -hmm. So uh, I actually lived in the Dominican Republic for quite some time. Uh, I would go work there over the summer. And um, when I was there, I ended up falling in love and brought over my now ex-husband, but was husband at the time, um, on a fiancé visa to the United States, uh, to San Francisco from Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic. I'll get into that later. Okay. But, um, I, um, yeah, I had this, you know, an amazing time working there. I worked in a Haitian, a woman Haitian run at ON, uh, ONG, like a nonprofit organization. And um, I liked it. And we won our case before oh. the Inter-American Inter Commission of Human Rights. I argued the case there in DC, wow. which wow. was an amazing experience to have as a law student. Um, but then the Dominican government changed their constitution to get around the ruling in the case. So we never stopped the discrimination, at least, uh, at, you know, since I stopped, stopped uh, following the case against um, Dominican children of Haitian descent. And so wow. the whole experience for me um, was crucial to my own education, but there was something, I decided I didn't like working in international human rights because who was I, this American, to go into some other country and complain about how they're mistreating and discriminating against people living there when my country was among the worst, uh, both domestically and internationally in doing that. And so, um, what I decided to do was to, uh, and, and this was after my second summer, I worked in New York at uh, the Center for Constitutional Rights, but the everyday work, not, not being, you know, next to and aiding the, the victims of the atrocities, um, just didn't, again, didn't feel right. It felt like these are great lawsuits. It's really important that this is happening but I feel sort of a lack of accountability to the communities that are being impacted by these atrocities. Did you feel um, a disconnect? Yeah, yes. Could, could it be felt, called that? Okay. It just didn't feel right to me. I, 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 I thought, you know, I, I don't feel as accountable to those communities as I'd like to feel. And um, I, there's so much going on at home. <laughs> and so I pretty much switched the career tra track that I was on at UC Berkeley. I was, I was looking to work in international human rights and I decided okay. that I did not want to do that. I wanted to work locally and I wanted to work hyper locally. And so my last year in law school, um, I kind of thought the best way to bridge sort of this interest I have in, in international human rights with 
working hyper locally is to work with immigrant communities in the U.S. Okay. And so I, um, and then I kind of full circle back to my dad, right? I, I ended up mm. focusing on uh, worker rights where I saw my dad get so mistreated as an immigrant with thick accent or at the time, you know, um, and uh, particularly with the immigrant community. And so I became- Were you, sorry, were you aware of that when you made that choice? Were you aware yeah. of that connection? Yeah. It was you don't very, have to be. It doesn't, it doesn't. It was very subconscious to me until later. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Right. I'm right. full circle here. It's, there's been lots mm -hmm. of um, realizations d during this whole process. But I, um, I ended up getting a fellowship to work at La Raza Centro Legal in the Mission District mm -hmm. uh, after I graduated. And I um, worked with day laborers and domestic workers. Uh, alongside them, accountable to them, in this very, um, and, and my mentor and the person that uh, taught me a lot of a lot of what I know, uh, her name is Renee Saucedo, and she was a lawyer, a UC Berkeley graduate, um, and 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 her philosophy on on be being a lawyer and working on social justice in the community is really to follow the lead of those that are being impacted by the injustice. So she, right. he did a ton of leadership development among the day laborer and domestic worker population. We created democratic structures mm. um, where the workers themselves made choices about what we were going to fight for and how. Um, and I actually created a legal clinic at where day laborers worked in the legal clinic, wow. uh, serving their peers who were not paid their wages. And they would do the intake and then we would discuss the cases as a group and we would file the lawsuit or the you know the administrative claims before the labor commissioner and, uh, and organize uh, campaigns to get the workers' wages back. Okay. And I did that for six and a half years and it was amazing and I loved it. That was Hillary Ronan. Join us Thursday for part two, when Hillary will walk us through her work with La Raza, and she'll share the story of the decision to run for elected office. Music for Storied San Francisco is by Otis McDonald. Photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. The show is hosted and produced by me, Jeff Hunt. Our website is storiedsf.com, where you can browse more than 100 episodes and help support us by buying merch from our store. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you see an option to rate and review the show, we'd sure appreciate it. And if you have any feedback or people you think should be on the podcast, our email is storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy and stay safe. Stay safe.